Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. Uh, really great panel discussion at uh, FanX in Salt Lake City uh, just uh, t- two weeks ago with uh, Marty Pasco talking about Batman the Animated Series. Marty joined the show in its first season. Uh, he has great stories about how he uh, joined the project for Fox. Remember, it was first Fox before it was uh, WB. And uh, some of the growing pains the uh, the show went through, interesting casting, and uh, lots of great stories. People had great questions, and it was a really fun hour talking with Marty Pascoe about Batman the Animated Series. I always say Pascoe. I know he gets nuts. Pascoe. So uh, enjoy this conversation with Marty on today's Word Balloon. Word Balloon is brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, very much for your support. Uh, a few more uh, new people this week. A few people have upped their subscription rate. I really do appreciate it. Um, As you know, I'm between radio jobs as far as full-time employment. I would love to make this my full-time concern and bring you a lot more Word Balloon programming. I mean, I I get inundated with people that want to be on the show. And, uh, you know, I I could definitely do more programming if I I had more funds and I could really make this a full-time concern. So uh, if you've ever been interested in uh, subscribing to Word Balloon, helping the cause, if you think what I do is worth, let's say, the price of a comic, you know, 4 or $5 a month. Yeah, I mean, you know, think of the hours of entertainment that you get that uh, you don't find in a lot of uh, comic book uh, magazines or books. Uh, you know, I try to bring it on a regular basis. It's the virtual Comic-Con because uh, you really get some quality time with the creators. You hear about their thoughts on not only their projects, but what inspires them. And I'm really happy to present it to you. This conversation we're going to have today with Marty Pascoe, uh, a perfect example of that. And uh, if you want to help, go to wordballoon.com. There's a Patreon ad on the front page. It will uh, send you to my Patreon page. And uh, if you can really help out, that would be terrific. Thank you again, League of Word Balloon listeners. Go to wordballoon.com. And you will hit the uh, link to the Patreon page. Or you can go to patreon.com slash wordballoon and find me there as well. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. There are some great collections that are available now at InStock Trades. Among them, Steve Epting, Ed Brubaker, a tremendous spy book, Velvet. Wow, I remember when Ed told us about this. And basically it's like, think of like if Miss Moneypenny were actually years before she was M secretary, a field agent, and suddenly finds herself back in the field. That is a great inspiration. Velvet is its own story. Uh, Epting does some incredible art. This is the great Captain America team back together again to uh, present this amazing spy story, Velvet. The hardcover deluxe edition is 50% off. It's just $24.99. You can also get Daredevil by Mark Wade and Chris Somney, The Omnibus, Volume 1, 42% off. It's just $58. There's also Teen Titans by Jeff Johns, Trade Paperback, Book 1. Mike McCone taking care of the art chores. Uh, you know, Jeff gave uh, the Titans a good kick in the pants, and that was an incredible run. Well, you get volume one of that, 50% off, $14.98. There's also Wonder Woman and the Justice League of America. Uh, Lots of great writers on this, Dan Vado, Chuck Dixon, uh, several others. Uh, This takes place between uh, Justice League of America, 78 to 85, the Justice League America Annual Number no. 7, and Guy Gardner Number no. 15. Some uh, interesting 90s Wonder Woman Justice League stories. It's uh, 50% off, $12.49. There's also East West, The Apocalypse Year 2. The hardcover, uh, there's a, a DCBS uh, variant 
that uh, this cover has. So that's pretty cool. Uh, John Hickman, Nick Dragata. The book is 50% off, $24.99. All waiting you for you, easy for me to say, at InStockTrades.com. Check it out for yourself. Great books, great prices. If your orders are $50 or more, you'll receive free shipping from InStockTrades.com. All right, let's uh, go back now to uh, just a couple weeks ago to Fanex in Salt Lake City. Uh, man, they treated me so nice, and I can't thank the organizers enough for inviting me out there. I did uh, five panels. Um, there, there are ones that I was just a panelist on. They were a lot of fun, but it was a really great opportunity to do spotlight interviews with Marv Wolfman and this interview with Marty Pasco. It was the first event that I did at Fan Expo uh, that Friday morning. And uh, everybody was alert. People had already seen Iron Fist, which cracked me up. That uh, I mean, the show had only been out for a couple hours, and already about a dozen people had already watched it. So, hardcore fans with great questions about Batman, the animated series. Here's Martin Pasco now on Word Balloon. Good morning, everybody. We're here to talk about uh, Batman, the animated series, a very influential cartoon. My name is John Suntress. I uh, host a podcast called Word Balloon, and I'm really excited to have this conversation with you and with our guest, a man who was involved uh, with the animated series uh, and also uh, Mask of the Phantasm, uh, a great DC writer for many, many years, Martin Pascal, everybody. Say hello, Martin. Good morning. I'm, uh, I'm sure we're all uh, interested in your origin story regarding the animated series. Now, you had spent uh, several years working at DC, writing great comics, writing Batman, writing Superman, many, many uh, DC characters, but how did your involvement with the animated series start? Well, excuse me, I'll answer that by way of explaining some of the origins of the show. Um, Bruce Timm and Eric Radomski, um, who has along the way sort of dropped off the fans' radar in terms of his uh, contribution to the show. We're both young animators at Warner Brothers Animation. The Batman movie franchise had started up, and the studio said, let's do an animated series. And Bruce had, and Eric had a vision, and they convinced Gene McCurdy, the head of the studio, to let them do a demo reel, which, in a variation, in a variation of which became the main title sequence for the original series. And the studio loved that, and they decided to give these guys the titles of showrunner. But they were inexperienced, and they were having trouble getting scripts approved. Bruce, at one point, said to Gene, I want a non-creative story editor. And Gene's reaction to that was sort of like, what is that? <laughs> and gave her assistant the job of finding someone to do that. The first story editor was having trouble getting scripts approved, and they were falling further and further behind schedule. And at that time, Alan Burnett, who was working at Hanna-Barbera, was coming to the end of his deal. Gene hired Alan to become the supervising producer and get the show back on track. Well, at that point, I was just the right guy at the right time, on the right street corner. <laughs> uh, the guy who was supervising the show at Fox, because you might remember the first season was on Fox Kids, not on the Kids WB, was an old buddy of mine named Sid Iwander, whom I'd worked with in production. 
He was the one, he was also supervising the very successful X-Men show at the same time, and was appalled at the scripts that he was getting. And I had mentioned to him over lunch, casually, he said, you know, I want to get back into animation. I'd been in live, but at that point, live was all sitcoms. And I, I had written a few of those and hated it. And I mentioned in passing, thinking nothing would come of it, the show I'd really like to work on is Batman. Well, they were also having trouble with DC. Denny O'Neill was appalled with the script. Appalled by the script. Denny, at the time, was the editor of Batman, the keeper the, of Batman, really. The group editor of Batman and an old buddy. I had written for him as an editor. Uh, I mean, as a, I had written for him as an editor and vice, and vice versa. So it was a perfect storm. I was the guy. Because basically, when you're a story editor, your job is to guarantee the scripts, to move the production forward. And they hire you less on the basis of what you write than on who you can get on the phone. And so we went from there. And Paul Dini joined us uh, about four or five weeks later. I brought in another writer named Michael Reeves. Um, an old buddy recommended him as a story editor. And that was basically Alan's team for that first 65. Um, 65 episodes, because 65 it was episodes. five days a week. Exactly. Exactly. And to call it a season is kind of silly, because... By network standards, an animation season is 13 shows. And sometimes a show will run for three or four years on just those 13 shows, or at least it did back in the day. It's completely different now, of course. Um, but the idea was that kids will watch the same show over and over again, um, so you could just order 13. And most studios were blowing their air dates anyway, so the playoff pattern was episode one, episode two, episode one, episode three, episode one, episode four. And, that, and, and so the idea of doing 60, what, what they call a strip syndication show, five days a week, a 65-show order was daunting. You couldn't just have one story editor, one producer, but that was the trend that the major studios, Disney and, and Warner Bros., that, that's what they were moving toward. And everybody had to get into the, that game. And so you had Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I wrote a couple of those. So anyway, you know, and that was the, that core team were also the people who wrote Batman Ma uh, Mask of the Phantasm. Yeah. At the end of that first season. Well, before that film, I know that uh, the debut of the animated series was so big, they even had it in prime time. Yes. Which is yes. unheard of. Well, back then, I mean, other than The Simpsons, I mean, it really, there were so very few times that animation would reach that prime time moment. Well, as much as I'd like to say that it was the quality of the show that impressed Fox, I think it was more political than anything else. I think uh, they wanted to repair some damage in their relationship with Warner Brothers, so okay. it was kind of a, sort of a sop to them. And I, I say that because they put it in a death slot, Sunday at 7, opposite 60 Minutes. <laughs> Nothing succeeds against 60 Minutes <laughs> in 1991. Yeah. Was it a, did it follow suit or was it a surprise hit? It uh, because I watched. I know I watched that. Yeah. Did anyone else? Does anyone else remember that? Okay, show of hands, absolutely. So, by the way, 
Marty and I will lapse in a conversation. So really, we want to get your questions as, as early as possible. So if you're burning with a question, this is the guy that can answer it. And please, start lining up at the microphones for questions because we really want to hear uh, what you want to know and, and talk about that as much as us uh, delving into what we know. So that would be great. But go on. Well, no, I, I pretty much exhausted the answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> so we're done. I'm, I'm very good at good exhausting night. the answers to questions. <laughs> no, um, the look of the first season had a, forgive me, Disney quality to it that I think in, in subsequent seasons. Well, actually, you've just reminded me of something I meant to say earlier. Because I had mentioned that Eric Radomski is the unheralded co-genius in creating not the the DCU animated look per se because many of the other shows like Superman and Green Lantern and so on are brighter but what he was the co-creator of was what was called the dark deco look and that was achieved with an imp improvisation that Eric originated normally backgrounds are painted on white stuff Eric had everything painted on black stock and built up the white color values from that. Wow. And that, plus Bruce's brilliant designs, were what created the look of that show. And it, it was a bridge between the kind of very sophisticated digital animation that we have today and standard flat line analog hand animation, which was limited for television. They, they knew how to digitize the show just well enough to be able to do things that were completely impossible in limited animation. Um, there's a principle in animation called squash and stretch, where you go slightly off model to emphasize the dynamism of the figure. It's more used in comedy cartoons, you know, when, you know, Bugs Bunny elongates, you know, somebody's pulling on his legs, you know. That's squash and stretch. But some of that principle is used in so-called dramatic animation. Um, so Bruce's models facilitated that beautifully. Um, Bruce would also do these things called costume theories. A theory is a study for an artist in how to draw the character. Bruce would tell the animators blue pencil this part of the figure. Draw through the cape. I mean, in all of these notations, so that the storyboard guys, the animators, even the in-betweeners were all on the same page. Which was why, despite the fact that we had three or four separate subcontractors doing the animation overseas, which varied wildly in quality, from Tokyo Movie Shinsha, which was the best, and there was a Korean studio, no longer in existence, called, called Dong Yang, which privately we had a number of really uh, dirty names for in our <laughs> and, and so well, the clean version of that studio, the name for that studio was Retake City. Okay. The stuff would come back. I mean, you're talking about things like the, the emblem on Batman's chest is upside down. Um, and what the other thing that Bruce insisted upon, because Warner Brothers was putting so much money behind that show, was 
multiple retakes. Um, I uh, story edited, and the way the story editors worked on that show, by the way, um, at the script level, we were almost de facto producers. We shepherded the scripts all the way through production. We would do the production rewrites. And as I say, that's part of the process of guaranteeing the script. And we would also sit in on the recording sessions. And we also were solicited for casting. Um, and I was very pleased with the number of suggestions I made that were taken, uh, like Dyke. Diana Maldar for uh, Dr. Leslie Tompkins. Oh, that's, uh, you remember that was Dr. Pulaski from uh, Next Generation, and mm -hmm. she was in the original series as well, L.A. Law as well. Go right. on. Right. And in fact, uh, a friend of mine was working on L.A. Law when they canned Diana by killing her. Yeah. In the elevator shaft. Sent her character down the elevator <laughs> shaft. And they, they mishandled it. Uh, they didn't bring her in to tell her they were going to do it the first time she oh, found out about that's it. Was she saw it in the script, and uh, she was like really depressed. And so, you know, yeah. great actor. So, you know, she was eager to work, and so that worked out nicely. But, but, and we would often do spontaneous rewrites in the recording sessions if somebody was having trouble with the dialogue. Uh, but one of the things. I'm sorry, I've completely lost my train. Well, no, I think I think I think you gave us, you know, you explained dark noir and and also got into uh, casting. I, I want to go to this uh, person who, who our first our first question, our first fan. So please, uh, question. Um, my name is Hannah, and I just want to thank you guys. Uh, the Batman animated series, I think, really just changed who I could have been. Uh, it was kind of a gateway drug to the DC in general, that and the Batman movie at the time. But I have two questions to don't mind. Um, one, when did did you know that the Batman animated series was going to affect as many people as it did? When did we know? Or did you know? Audience response. It, it's difficult to say. Um, because the studio was doing a full court press behind the whole uh, Batman franchise, we knew there was going to be a lot of support behind it. We were very surprised by the numbers, but the success of the show really grew over time. And I think it was when they did the second version that introduced Robin regularly, and I believe that was the point. I, I don't recall whether that was still Fox or they, they had moved over to the kids' WB at, at that point. Um, the numbers on that were huge. And in terms of a critical response to the series, as opposed to, you know, I mean, it, it was very, very difficult back in that day to gauge fan impact because things like the shows like this just didn't exist at that time. But when they got the numbers on the second version of the show, and they were satisfied with Mask of the Phantasm to the point where they distributed it theatrically, briefly, um, then they started to get an inkling that this thing was bigger than they, they thought it was going to be. And as I say, the critical response was also what impressed the studio. Um, Siskel and Ebert said that it was the best written Batman feature of that first cycle. I'm from Chicago. I do remember that. <laughs> I mean, I was blown away by that. So in other words... I, I'm sorry. I'm not quite sure if I answered the question. Well, I think partially, but I was going to ask, was it instinctual on Fox's part 
to make Mask of the Phantasm into a feature. You mean Warner Brothers? Or pardon me, Warner Brothers. Prior to uh, hearing, uh, you know, this kind oh, no, of fan no, no. That feedback, was, that was definitely that was always part of the plan. To be direct, no, that was that was intended to be direct on video. Okay, so it must have been then this fan reaction to say, "Hey, maybe we should, we could also put this in a limited theater release." I think the, the, some of the, the fan feedback, the numbers on the show, and the critical response to the series. Sure. I mean, I remember at one point going into Gene McCurdy's office and seeing a stack of magazines, Cine Fantastique, Film Facts, you know, all of these, I don't, want to, I don't want to sound disparaging, but they were referred to at the time as glorified fanzines. Sure. <clears throat> and she was just sitting there shaking her head saying, this must be an exploitable market. I mean, this is, you know, and that did develop over time. The merchandising was also significant, and that was a big battle. Because originally, Warner Brothers Consumer Products wanted Batman to look as he did in the features. They wanted him all in black in the comics and all in black in the animation. And DC said, absolutely not. We have a trademark, and we are invested for some 40 years now in the idea that Batman is gray and dark blue. And they went back and forth about that. And then at some point, someone, I think the DC licensing person, Cheryl Rubin, said, wait a minute, we can do three separate product lines. We can do, we can do feature Batman, we can do comic book Batman, and we can do animated Batman. Three separate style guys. Uh, I... I don't re- I don't recall whether it was Hasbro. I think it was Hasbro who was the, the, the key licensee. They signed on, and then it was ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. <laughs> well, no, but there's real, real synergy there in the sense sure. that the, the merchandising supports, you know, the, the animation and vice versa. And that's what they've been building on now for 25 years. Absolutely, man. And another interesting sideline. There was much confusion about that show when it first started. The commercials that they were so, that were sold in for the, the strip show in the, in the first season were all for preteen toys and little girls' toys. So you had this dark Batman show cutting away to commercials for you know tiny tears and, and strawberry you know, shortcake. They go yeah, <laughs> and we're sitting there going, what are these guys thinking? And, and it took a while for Fox to go, for the sales department at Fox to go, oh, oh it's tween show. I get it. Because we were thinking what is now called the 420 slot, you know, after, after college classes. And so we were expecting high school students and, um, you know, college students college kids, to, be, yeah. to be tuning in. Sure. And we found out that they did. Okay, Very shut cool. me up. Ask no, me. no, all good. This is the last question. What's your favorite episode? Oh, good one. What is your favorite episode? And I, and I would say, and I would also say, include the film if you if you want Out to. Out of sixty-five. Well, there's two answers to that question. Uh, I supervised uh, about thirty thirty-five shows, something like that. And so, one answer to the question is, what is my favorite of those episodes? And ego forbids me from saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. My favorite of those shows is something called Paging the Crime Doctor. Great one. 
Um, and it's the, the only show that I was a story editor writer on that I took a credit on because I had to do a page one rewrite on it. But as a favorite of mine because of the way it turned out. If you're going to talk about the overall series, well, I have to say, even though I disagree with sympathetic villains in shows for kids, which is what we thought Batman the Animated Series was at the time, I have to say Heart of Ice. And Mr. Freeze. Michael Ancera as Mr. Freeze. Brilliant script by Paul Dini, brilliant acting by Michael Ansara, beautifully directed. I can't remember which one of our directors did it. I think it may have been Bruce himself, but I'm not sure. Okay. And that was the show that was nominated uh, for the Emmy. So, you know, how can I not love that show? I have an Emmy because of it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. But in terms of a vision being realized overall, I I would have to say Batman, the end Mask of the Phantasm. I know that's not an episode, but I would have to say that's probably the best thing we did in that first season. Did anyone else see that in the theaters? I know I did. It was it was incredible uh, actually seeing an animated movie looking like that. I mean, we had Transformers the movie before and other animated features, but really, again, this this uh, dark noir tone of the series really came alive on the on the big screen as well, and was just so exciting to see. And it doesn't surprise me that. Uh, Siskel and Ebert loved it as much. But it was animated for television, or to be seen on a small screen. And here's a little in-joke. There was a L.A. Times reviewer named Charles Sullivan who covered animation, and he was a Disney purist. And he hated television animation, and he hated the look of Batman the Animated Series. There's a villain in Batman, uh, Mask of the Phantasm, named Chucky Saul. <laughs> a little joke. <laughs> More questions, sir. Okay, I listen to a podcast called Arkham Sessions where they do, where a doctor does a psychological breakdown of each episode. I wondered, was there, like, like the style guy, was there a psychology guy? And then did they do research into what would be affecting these characters in the real world or to give it that realism and that actual psychological problem deal? Well, I would say that as Batman had been retconned in the 10 years or so before we started that show, um, the psychological underpinnings of the characters um, had been explored by previous writers. What we did was essentially liberate ourselves from the idea of canon and cherry-picked from any point in the continuity what we thought were the best elements of Batman. But there was a lot of stuff that didn't make psychological sense, if you will. So, we did do some improvising, but it was sort of like filling in blanks. And Denny O'Neill himself told Alan Burnett that he thought that our take on Two-Face was the best version of the character he'd ever seen. Sure. And that was quite a compliment to Alan, because that was a terrific show. Um, my sense of that character is that he's got a lot of psychological problems. Harvey Dent. This is, no, 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 I'm sorry. Batman. Batman, okay, come on. This is a guy working out his issues. And subsequent iterations of the character have, you know, fleshed that out and gone that direction. By the way, I have to say, 
I think Gotham is the best show on television. I really do. I love it. I love it to death. Exquisite writing, wonderful acting. And see, if, you, if you haven't seen it, do tune it in. Uh, because essentially they're doing it in a much more sophisticated way and with many more resources at their disposal and, of course, in live action. They are doing what we sort of kind of were trying to do on Batman the Animated sure. Series in the sense that they are cherry-picking from various points in the continuity. But what they do in terms of making those characters realistic is something that, only we, that we could have only dreamed of because of the limitations of, of animation. That's... So my question had to do with how did you choose the voice actors um, to portray these characters, uh, especially Batman? How did help, uh, help me out here? I'm yeah, no, no, it's okay. Yeah, the, the uh, get it casting, getting the right actor for the right part. I know Andrea Romano is very respected, and I know, uh, I've know i had the pleasure of interviewing her a couple times, mm-hmm. and uh, I think the level of acting and the sophistication in acting was very different from what we were getting from standard animation oh, well, sure. of, of the day. So, yeah, it, it, was there ever, you know... Well, a, lar- a large part of that really did come down to budget. Um, you know, the, the show was enormously well-supported by Warner Brothers. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so what uh, they did were what was called buyouts. Instead of paying for just one recording and then relying on residuals, they would pay multiple of that. And it was a nice chunk of change. So actors who were either between gigs or didn't actually do animation were attracted to the show. And this is how we got people like John Glover as the Riddler and uh, uh, David Hemmings as Rachel Gould, people like that. And Andrea had a significant other who had been a voice recording uh, director at Hanna-Barbera. And what he was doing um, in his spare time were chamber theater readings for the radio, for the National Public Radio Station uh, in Santa Monica. Am I right? L.A. Theater Works, isn't that the... Exactly. That's yeah, it. great that's it. Great audio drama show, if you, if you haven't heard it. And it's a unique... Now that theatrical radio has been dead for 60 years, <laughs> acting with your voice is an, a lost art. And prior to Batman the Animation, uh, animated series, top 40 DJs, people like Casey Kasem, were doing the voices. He was the voice of Robin, he was the voice of Shaggy. Right, right. And in a straight dramatic role, you would get acting like this, and it's <laughs> over the top. Yeah. And Stu, Andrea's partner, had access to all these fantastic actors who had demonstrated that they could act with their voice. Uh, John Vernon, Rene Aubergenois, so many people from that group. And they, we found a subset of people who enjoyed doing science fiction and fantasy. And as you know, Rene Aubergenois has appeared in you know every Star Trek series that there's been. Um, so that's how, and Ed Asner, um, you know, yes. we got some great people. He was Boss Thorne, I want to say, right? In the, yeah, because in, of that. In the animated series, yeah. But frankly, I was a little bit frustrated sometimes. We had the conception, for example, of the Riddler as being very cold and emotionless because he was arrogant, intellectually superior in his mind. 
And we wrote it that way. John Glover got it, and he came in, and he gave the reading that we were looking for on the first read-through. And Andrea would say, more energy, more energy, you know. And so by the time he got done, he was doing that kind of voice again. <laughs> when we brought John back for the second Riddler show, What is Reality? John came in, and in the first read-through, he was giving us this. And Andrea pulls out a boombox and plays back his recording, his track from the first episode. And he looks at it and says, oh, you want that again? <laughs> but generally speaking um, we were well served by actors who understood to look for subtext and they would frequently come up to us and they would say wow there is a subtext <laughs> and Ephraim Zimzis Jr. in particular Alfred yeah yeah, my god was I mean, a, an amazing gentleman fascinating to talk to and a humanitarian um, you know, and, and a lovely man. And he just, every time he would see any of us at the recording sessions, he would make a point of saying, I can't believe how good these scripts are. That's I can't great. believe this is a cartoon. Wow. So we were well served by people who got over the idea of it being a cartoon very, very easily and treated it as if it were more sophisticated material. To answer your question, about Batman specifically, I frankly don't know where Kevin Conroy came from. But I do know that he invented a concept that has been consistently played by every actor since. And that is the idea that Bruce Wayne talks like this. And Batman talks like this. And watching Kevin switch between those two voices and turn on a dime was amazing. So some of our writers, myself included, we would get into this, this habit of having him start a sentence as Bruce Wayne as he's pulling on the cowl so that in mid-sentence he has to transition. <laughs> not as a game, not as a challenge, but because we knew that Kevin could do it. Yes, Alfred, I have to go out there. And I have to find the way. <laughs> well, and also as, as the ensemble grew, and Batgirl and Tim Drake and, mm -hmm. and Nightwing were all part of it too. You really got these levels of Batman as a father figure, but Conroy never lost his edge, despite having to be this familial kind of father figure and everything. And it's it's amazing. I got to talk to him about the Killing Joke uh, last summer, wow. which you know is kind of hidden. Well, that's right, he's back. Yeah, it's you know it was funny. You know, years ago he said never again, except for this and this and this, and then you know. But a killing, I know, killing joke for he and Hamill was something was a project they both really wanted to do. Had said it for years, so it was good that they finally got to to do it. Right. Yeah. I, I also can't really speak to how Mark Hamill got the Joker because uh, the first Joker show was already in the can before I, Alan Burnett or I came in. Okay. So Bruce Tim would be the one who would know that. Um, Another panel for another time. Sir. Uh, yes, you touched on this a little bit with the intended audience, but for me, you saw it as a child, one thing that immediately stuck out to me that is that it never talked down to me. Immediately said it talked from other shows. How did you strike that tone? Because even if that sort of at late high school, college was your audience, you had no children to watch it. 
Yeah, and I almost wondered too if, uh, sorry, if I, if I could add on to that, uh, if there was pushback from either Warner Brothers or Fox that it was too adult. <laughs> Because it was supposed to be a Y7 show, and you get, I mean, my, my first answer, the first thing that popped into my head when I heard the question was, a lot of fighting with the network. <laughs> we got that done. Well, they're selling to seven-year-olds. They're trying to sell toys and, and sell a show to seven-year-old well, people. It's nice to have an adult audience, but maybe that's well, not the target. What was also going on at the same time was Batman Returns, the second Tim Burton movie. And they were losing licensees over that for content inappropriate to children. And when they couldn't make a deal with McDonald's because they didn't want any Batman Happy Meals, wow, that totally spooked them. Uh, the one show I wrote, rather than you know dozens that I rewrote, um, was something called See No Evil, uh, which is uh, about a little girl who was visited by an imaginary playmate who turns out to be her estranged criminal father in an invisibility suit. And my original story was actually a lot softer. And it was Alan Burnett who kept saying, make it darker, make it darker. And, and, I'm, and I'm like, Alan, we're sort of tiptoeing up to something kind of unsavory, you know. And we finally found the right tone. But the studio, I mean, one of the executive producers on the show, Tom Ruger, who was a, a father of small children, was deeply offended by that script. Wow. And it was only because he was overruled by his boss, Gene McCurdy, that we got it done. Um, but generally, what you're perceiving was the idea of not talking down to kids, while at the same time avoiding flagrantly age-appropriate material. Um, I consider the question a compliment, quite frankly, because it was something that we did consciously work hard at. Um, and that was one of the few things that everybody at the top level of production, Bruce, Eric, the directors, the writing staff, Alan Burnett, it was the one thing that we were in total agreement about. We will not talk down to our audience. Cool. No, and I think, again, that's why we got this generation that I think became comic book fans and Batman fans because of the series. Please, next. You brought up your favorite episode before, and this is a personal question, I understand. But uh, what would be your least favorite episode or something in an episode you were part of you wish that could have gone better? What was the worst episode, if you're willing to say, in your opinion, that you're like, well, we got to do it, here it is? Well... When I came aboard, there was a box of scripts, something short of a hundred. Wow. That represented several thousand dollar write-off, unless they could be salvaged. Um, because of, they had been, you know, we had, we had a script in there with the title Rockabye Batman, in which, in which Batman was a babysitter. Uh, <laughs> it's tough when I the day I showed up the day I showed up they dumped this box in my lap and said here see what you can do with this and after a week of struggling with them I went back into Alan's office and I said 
there's very little here that I can see, you know, and I gave him notes and everything. And he said, all right, let me take a look at some things. And he handed back to me in the other story editors this short list of things that he thought could be saved. Um, I believe we actually produced I've Got Batman in My Basin. Yeah, I remember that one, sure. <laughs> Yeah, that was one of those too crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the Penguin shows, I was the one I got stuck with them. Uh, I thought they were pretty lame. Interesting. Uh, the, the man who the man who invented the bat the Batmobile was that what it, what it was called? The mechanic. The mechanic. There was a, there was a, sh a show we did. One of the, one of the things you do when you're a story editor is when you finish the rewrite of something you really, really hate, you wipe it out of your mind. <laughs> and I, I hated the Penguin shows on so many levels. Because I thought Paul Williams was a terrible choice for the lines of the Penguin. Um, it wasn't too crazy about Adrian Bobo was the Catwoman either, but I stayed away from the Catwoman. Uh, Interesting. Cool. Well, so, you know, I mean, there, 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 are, there are several that are, that are lame, and I... Basically, look at the end credits, and if you see the story editor Martin Pasco credit, that's the lame show because I was the one who was stuck. <laughs> no, no, I mean, we all work in different ways as story editors. Uh, Michael Reeves believed in bringing in the best possible people so that he wouldn't have to rewrite them and leave them alone. And he brought in Joe Lansdale, who did the uh, Perchance to Dream in that Hatter episode. Happen Leonard is his current series, yeah, yeah. And, uh, also did the uh, ventriloquist show with the with the, my favorite title in the entire series, "Read My Lips," <laughs> and and Jerry Conway and so on. Uh, Paul Dini basically wrote. He wasn't much of a rewrite person, um, so he just he, he, he shepherded through production of his own scripts. Okay, I was the guy who could do the page one rewrite because that's what I had had to do in life so frequently. So when the thing was a lox, Pasco, <laughs> and I'd make notes and make notes, and then by page 15, I'm not making notes anymore, I'm throwing it away, I'm starting from scratch. <laughs> and, but following the spine of those stories wasn't very good. Anyway. Very cool. I'm glad to mention Joe Lansdale because, yeah, I'm always interested. Who, who are some of the, and, and also, uh, well, you said Danny and Jerry Conway, who are some of the other comic book Writers well, I, well, I was the guy who brought in most of the comic book people. Uh, the only reason Mike, Michael brought in Jerry Conway was that he got the Jerry before I did. Jerry was an old buddy. But Denny O'Neill, Len Wein, Marv Wolfman, Mike W. Barr, uh, Batman writers. Yeah. Who, with the exception of Mike, I knew had animation shots or TV shots. Denny had not written uh, animation, but he had written for live-action television in the 70s. And we wanted to do adaptations. And uh, I thought, well, why not give people who wrote the original story Absolutely. a shot at it? And Denny did, a, did the first two Rachel Rules episodes, and those were terrific. Oh, my God, yeah. So superior to the movie attempts at, at Rachel Ghoul, I, I, I think, but, you know. I, you can't being a fan well, of the original story. Although the version of it on Arrow is kind of interesting, I think. Some people don't agree with that. No worries. Next question, please. How's your time? Uh, after like, season two, there's a rare animation shift and like a title change. Like, Joker looked different, Dow looked different. 
What's the story behind like what happened to Pat? The, how things changed in the second season as far as design. Why did it change from the first season? Like I said, the first season to me looked very Disney-esque. After that, um, the designs for the show changed. And like he said, the Joker design changed. A lot of things changed. Well, and even uh, you know, Batman's costume changed. And Yes. And it was the decision to change the costume in the comics that drove the tweaking for that second season. And... Here I'm a little unsure of my ground because I, I had moved on by that point. I wasn't associated with the show. I was off doing other things. Uh, but, you know, I'm still in touch with people and things came back to me. Um, I think there was also a, a general sense of needing to revisit designs because this was a conscious effort to make the show a little more kid-friendly okay. than the first season had been perceived. You already mentioned the kind of Batman family that grew out of the show. Tim, uh, you know, Tim Drake and so on. So, yeah, I think that answers it. Yeah. Are we, uh, Sir, no, we're doing fine. Uh, you know, if, if we need to, we'll, we'll go to like 1150 at least and, and accommodate everyone. But yeah, we're, we're mindful of the clock. Please, okay. next question. Uh, growing up watching cartoons in the 90s, I distinctly remember there's always a moral lesson in a lot of the cartoons I watched, like don't do drugs or don't drink or, or what have you, or almost public service announcement. Like, yeah. I'm just curious, how much were you going for just pure entertainment value versus how, if you were trying to impart some sort of moral lesson to your audience? Well, I think a lot of people in show business would agree with the idea, if you want to send a message, call Western Union. (laughs) (laughs) It takes a very, very skillful writer. Frankly, one of the more skillful I think any of us possess to impart moral lessons without, you know, hitting the reader over the head of the mallet, the viewer over the head of the mallet. Um, and so we, we didn't try. We felt that the morality, if there was a, a moral lesson uh, in a story, just came to the character's behavior. Batman, as troubled a character as he was, obviously stood for morality. And of course, we, we stuck very carefully to the idea that he didn't kill, wouldn't fire a gun. But we wouldn't have been allowed to have him kill anybody even if we had thought it was a good idea because of what's called the Standards and Practices Department. And what you were talking about, about the, you know, you know always buckle up your seatbelt and, you know, whatever. A lot of that stuff came from the pressure groups that were monitoring Saturday morning programming in the 80s. And the Standards and Practices departments fell in line with that. At Fox, we, in the first season, we had a Standards and Practices department. And they had a lot of, uh, Avery Coburn, I believe, was the woman saying, lovely lady, just doing her job. But boy, did she take a beating from the writers. Uh, they had a lot of, uh, one of their things that was a, a fetish, almost, was no breaking glass. You cannot break glass. Let me back up a step and put this in context. It is predicated on the idea that the younger viewer is a monkey. Who will, <laughs> really, who will imitate anything he sees on television. 
and it, this was based, and this fear was based on something that happened, and it's apocryphal apparently, in the early 70s. Um, a young child accidentally hanged himself or herself with a towel after watching not a Superman cartoon, but I think a Scooby-Doo cartoon. He had a cape in a cartoon or something. And ever since then, there was this horrible fear that anything you did would be imitated by children. I developed four uh, early in the 80s for NBC, and the show didn't go because NBC would not allow Florida to have a hand. No mioma. And when Marvel heard about that, Stanley was just like, oh, never mind. They walked away from the deal before they let the show be produced. So that was the climate that we were working in, and the animators would try to stick it to the network. They would find opportunities to insert broken windows in the scripts, in the, in the storybooks, wherever they possibly could. But the climate was changing. There weren't any pressure groups. The idea of not just kids are watching this, all of that was coming together at the time we started that show. So we were inclined to impart moral lessons, and we were under no pressure to do so. Cool. Next. One of the things I love about animated series is that you get these voice actors that if you can watch behind the scenes, you get not just some of the more cool stories that you've been sharing with us, but a lot of the times you can get a lot of laughs. And so I was wondering if you could share with us a few times during the voice acting sessions that you may have sat on in where things got a little bit maybe not on task but were still very much enjoyable. When you were doing voice sessions, were there any funny things that happened that weren't, you know, obviously part of the story, but just spontaneously funny things that you might remember in any voice sessions that you well, observed? Well, not in terms of anything that would make it into the picture. Right. Um, well, because still there are, you know, network approvals involved, and they want to hear the track that they approved. Sure. So if you're asking, was there any improvises done in the course of the recording? No. That, that simply wasn't allowed. Um, funny events. Ed Asner, crack wise, or somebody like that, or no, they were all very professional. Okay, and or something crazy. Well, happened. everybody got in and out very, very quickly. You know, we would how long? And uh, yeah, I sh should point out. Um, am I right? Most of the time, it was one actor really reacting to maybe Andrea or, or somebody else. How often did you have more than one actor at a recording session? Well, there were like. Four or five podiums, oh, okay. lecterns rather, in, in the booth, and we would generally have the regulars. Okay, um, and sometimes, sometimes an entire cast. Oh, that's great! But very often we did things with phone patches. Obviously, the guys in England, like uh, David Hemmings, um, were recording in London, and I would, I am, or Alan, or Bruce, or somebody would have to read the part. And they, they would, you know, patch that in later. But we would do, we would go in, we would, we would do a table reading, uh, break for lunch, another read-through in the booth for the sound levels, and then record, take, do takes. And most of the guys just got it on the first take, you know. So we would, we would start at 11, break for lunch, and be out of there by 2. 
you know. That's great that you had the whole and, cast. Because, go yeah, ahead, please. Well, no, I'm just saying there, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of screwing around. It was okay, very professional. Because I know for Return of the Cape Crusader, a lot of people were asking. Adam West and Burt Ward and Julie Newmar. What was it like to work together again? It's like, we didn't work together again. We all did this separately, but we knew each other so well. You know, and I mean, and, and you, it, the proof is in the, in the end result, so it's interesting to see that, you know, you guys were doing table readings and, and doing full, full cast recordings. And also, a phone patch is, is a different thing Sure. Uh, recording separately, uh, ADR or whatever, uh, in the sense that they're actually interacting with the other actors. They're just not physically in the room. I think what you're talking about is everybody's recording the track at separate times. Yeah. And so they're not really working together at all. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. We're going to get these last three in. Go ahead, please. So, you know, I grew up with this show. Some of my earliest memories were sitting in front of the TV watching it. And that's what I got to, I think, in the first movie I ever gone to in the theater um, when I was a kid. So my question is, like, what was your experience with Batman before you started doing this? Was it, like, something you had a lot of experience with? Was it something that, you know, you got excited when you first heard that you were going to be working on the show? Or was it kind of something that you had into in a lot of research for? If I'm understanding the question correctly, what was my background with Batman? Yes, prior, prior to the animated series. Feel free, man. <laughs> It's okay. Some people don't know them. I, uh, You're no, it's, it's okay. I'm just trying to figure out how to summarize it without going on forever, but it's probably too late for that anyway. Uh, I started at DC as an associate editor in 1973, and the guy I was assisting was Julian Schwartz, who was the editor of the Batman books. So I was the associate editor of the Batman books. I, I've written a very, very small number of Batman comics, most of the stuff I've done with the character has been in things like Justice League or, you know, Superman. as a guest shot, you know, in, in the other titles. But I'm certainly more familiar uh, with the character. Uh, and in fact, one of the ways in which I think I was able to serve the series was that when I was working at DC for my first tour of duty, um, a guy named Michael Fleischer published the Batman Encyclopedia, which was a summary of every character and every story that had been published in Batman books up to that time. And no one at Warner Brothers had ever heard of it. And I pointed this out to them, and we got them copies, and a lot of the that cherry-picking from the various aspects of the continuity was facilitated by that encyclopedia. But anyway, uh, that's basically my, my experience with Batman. But when I started in animation, it was a character I'd always wanted to, to work on. But the opportunity to do it Intelligently did not come along until that show. Wow. All right, there you go. Please. So, uh, a question. What do you think about the uh, Batman Batgirl relationship? Because I think it's pretty gross. Oh, in the, kill, in the killing joke specifically? Yes. Well, just in general. Like, they have all these like, weird, like, subtextual, like, romantic thing going on with, like, Barbara Burden and Mike recently. But that's just that. <laughs> Who was pushing that and why? <laughs> Yeah. I have no idea. <laughs> to be honest, personal taste in truth here in the sense that I was never fond of the Batgirl character. Um, Interesting. Uh, yeah, and the, the Killing Joke, it's a, it's a great comic, but what was the purpose of putting Barbara Gordon in a wheelchair except perhaps to get rid of the Batgirl character? But then have her continue in the series in the wheelchair never made much sense to me. 
Now that's and, and I can appreciate that, but I, obviously her position as Oracle became very important to a segment of the audience. Oh, and, sure. and and yeah, absolutely. Oh, no, I'm talking about uh, yeah, personal thing. The relationship thing, you know, you gotta uh, the stuff depending on who's writing and what story. Every story, especially in the animation world. It, well, there's the series, but then there's been these animated movies, and I'm speaking specifically to The Killing Joke. It was a different interpretation of the two characters. It didn't help that they had Kevin Conroy and Tara Strong uh, doing the voices, who had also done them on the animated series. But even before uh, we had seen the film, I was in the press junket for Killing Joke, and I asked, how old is Barbara in this? How old is Bruce in this? And she's like early 20s, and she's like probably, you know, late 20s or 30s. She said, but it was a different, Tara was saying this, it's a, it's a different continuity. We, ex- I mean, I accepted that. I can appreciate, especially in the comics, how they've put Bruce, or rather Barbara and Dick Grayson together for years, uh, both in the animated series and with some sort of flirtation. But, you know, they were adults uh, in the movie. I can appreciate people being creeped out by that. I just took it as a different story myself, but that's... My two cents. Well, you're, thank you for having my back on this because I'm realizing now you're speaking, both of you, specifically to the Killing Joke animated feature. Well, I, I assume that's which, one, one thing. Which I that, confess I haven't seen. Well, there you go. And I mean, yeah, they, they had a first act that had nothing to do with Alan's story if people haven't seen the animated film uh, that, that Brian Azzarello wrote for the film to make it a low lengthy movie. It was a choice. Uh, the, the audience has responded, and I, I'm sure you know Warner Brothers has heard, and I'm sure we'll act accordingly in, in future productions. We got one last question? Before the last question, question if I can let you know when you leave, please leave through the side door and not to the back. We have one last quick question. Yeah, real fast if you could. Yeah, uh, I was just wondering, knowing now what's come from basically that in the end of the series, like, you know, Justice League and then Batman Beyond and even the Arkham games, like the impact that that had and not only the voice acting that continued, but just that legacy that's left. Have you continued to watch that and do you, do you watch that and just feel that, that pride that what you basically created was basically the standard for everything forward and kind of Batman winning the superhero genre? Mm. I followed some of it. Uh, and again, this is just personal case. I can't really answer it in any other context except to say that I think I was spoiled by Bruce's designs. And I'm having a real hard time opening up my closed mind to the alternative design approaches to the subsequent shows. And I'm less of an anime fan, perhaps, than the next person. So that strong influence on the style of the animation is a bit of a turnoff to me. So I, I couldn't do justice to your question in trying to answer it because of personal bias. Okay, there we go. I hope you enjoyed our uh, conversation today and I hope you enjoy the rest of the convention. And if you like what we talked about, make sure you go to wordballoon.com and uh, listen to more of my podcasts where I have these kind of conversations. But thank you. Thank you. And uh, come visit me in Artist Alley if you care to. And thank you. Bye-bye. Marty Pasco, you heard the applause. I think we had a good reception. You know, we got, I think we kind of got this down. Uh, we, we did a similar panel, I think, in Cincinnati. Although, I think we talked a lot more than just Batman, the animated series. But uh, Marty has had such a varied career. And really, 
it's so weird because we've been talking <laughs> for 11 years now, I think, on Word Balloon. And uh, I think we've only scratched the surface. So much live action television stories that we can get into and still haven't. Other animated projects and stuff. Uh, Marty was on a uh, My Little Pony panel with um, Agnes Grabowski. And uh, I, I didn't, uh, you know, I wasn't able to attend it. But he was telling me about it and stuff. So, no, I mean, there's there's a million things. I know we've touched on it before. He uh, wrote the 80s Twilight Zone for CBS, uh, which was a pretty good show back then. And he, he was one of the writers on that. And, um, you know, God, this he briefly mentioned it, the Spider-Man uh, Fox animated series. He was involved in that. So, uh, you know, yeah, we, we got we to gotta go beyond the obvious next time Marty comes out. But was happy to do this uh, Batman animated series conversation uh, for the people uh, at Fanex in Utah. That'll do it for, I think, for our Utah coverage. Uh, like I said, I was on a couple other uh, panels, but they were more just kind of fun panels. I don't know. I've got I've got tapes, so maybe maybe down the road I might release them. But um, great stuff still to come. Uh, one more before we end March, and then uh, we go into April. Uh, Alex Segura, you know him from his day job at Archie Comics and formerly with DC, uh, the editor of the Dark Circle more serious hero Archie comics like uh, Hangman and The Shield and, um, you know, the black, uh, what is it? Oh, I'm blanking. Dwayne Swierzynski. Is it black? No, it's not. Black Hood. I was going to say Black Mask. I'm like, it's not Black Mask. It's Black Hood. So uh, that's Alex's day job. Uh, He is also uh, kicking ass as an author, has this great detective character, Pete Fernandez. And we talk about Pete's adventures uh, the third book in the Pete Fernandez series is coming out uh, next month, April 11th, and uh, happy to have Alex talk about that. And we just talk about, you know, detective fiction in general. It's a fun word balloon coming up before the end of the month. Be sure to listen to it. It's the next episode. Word balloon is also brought to you by In Stock Trades at InStockTrades.com, where uh, there's some really cool collections at great prices right now at In Stock Trades. I like very few manga. I just, I don't know, man. There's very few that speak to me, or anime, but uh, Gogol 13, big fan of all that. Uh, but another one that I love, a great detective series, uh, Master Keaton. And uh, there's an incredible collection from Viz Media. Uh, it's uh, the graphic novel, beautiful presentation, uh, 30% off. It's just $13.99 at in-stock trades. DMZ, book three. Uh, this is, uh, what's the title of book three? It just says book three, but you know, DMC was an incredible series from uh, Ricardo Bercelli and Brian Wood, uh, and certainly, I think, uh, a very interesting thing that, uh, given uh, the the fractures in our our current American society, uh, I think it speaks to that in a way uh, that even while it was being published, uh, I I, I think, unfortunately, things have gotten worse. So, uh, man, you want to just see just to the edge of reality what could happen? DMC is the series for you. Uh, book three is on sale this weekend in stock trades, 45% off, $13.74. Truly my favorite Brian Wood series, definitely DMZ. Uh, Civil War II Fallout, funny, uh, as we're recording, I had a conversation with Brian Bendis, and we talk about uh, reader reaction to the Civil War fa- Fallout. But uh, this is a collection that has uh, Ulysses 1 through 3, The Fallen, The Accused, and The Oath. Uh, various writers, various artists, but it's a cool collection. 42% off, $14.49 if you want the autopsy of Civil War II. There's Batman by Brian K. Vaughn. Uh, I think it speaks for itself. Scott McDaniel doing a lot of the art chores in this uh, collection. 
But uh, great collection of Batman stories from uh, the master writer. 45% off, $9.34. Just a few of the deals that are happening right now at In Stock Trades. Check out the website. You will find great books at great prices. InStockTrades.com. All right, thanks again for listening. Uh, We'll uh, join you again in just a couple days, right before the end of uh, March, going into April. Uh, Thanks a lot for the support. uh, I'm uh, having a a really interesting time, and uh, I will tell you about some projects that uh, have just been announced that I'm involved with, and uh, they're keeping the lights on here here at Word Balloon, and I'm glad that that's happening, and uh, hope to have more of things like I'm about to announce in the future. Plus, C2E2 is just a couple weeks away. And I'll be there in Chicago at uh, the C2E2 convention. So lots of news uh, as we uh, wrap up March, heading into April. Keep it here on Word Balloon. Come to wordballoon.com for the next podcast. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2017.